You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Hello, everyone. Peter Maravellis here, hoping this finds you all safe and well. On behalf of City Lights booksellers and publishers, I'd like to welcome you to a special edition of City Lights Live, the virtual reading series that carries on in the footsteps of our in-store calendar during the time of the pandemic. We are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral grounds of the Ramatushaloni people, from where we continue to celebrate the works of authors we know and love with readings, discussions, and forums, moving into the fall season and beyond, and hopefully towards a COVID-free era. Today, we bring you a special program. It is the second in a two-part event honoring the life and work of the celebrated poet, Diane De Prima. The first took place last Wednesday and featured friends and family, as well as colleagues, honoring her life and reading excerpts from her classic work, The Revolutionary Letters. This week marks one year since her passing in October of 2020. Diane De Prima was at the forefront of the beat movement as one of its outspoken feminist voices and one of the 20th century's great feminist poets. She was involved with the Greenwich Village literary art and music scenes in the 1950s, the freedom of speech battles of the 1960s, and later taught poetics at the New College of California, the San Francisco Art Institute, and the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics at the Naropa Institute in Colorado. She served as Poet Laureate of San Francisco in 2009. During her life, Diane De Prima published more than 40 books. She held a very special place for us here at City Lights as we shared a deep friendship with her and her family, and we're very honored to be able to publish her work, having released numerous titles over the years. Today, we are celebrating the launch of the publication of the final book Diane De Prima produced. It is called Spring and Autumn Annals. It is a poetic memoir created in honor of Diane's late friend, Freddie Herco. Uh, the narrative in the book ranges over a decade from 1954, the year Diane and Herco first met, to 1965, uh, with real occasional forays into Diane's memories of growing up in Brooklyn. It is a lyrical, elegant, and very nakedly honest work. Spring and Autumn Annals is a moving tribute to a friendship and to the extraordinary innovation and accomplishments of the period. Tonight's event is being brought to you by City Lights Foundation, working in conjunction with Lost and Found, the CUNY Poetics Document Initiative at the City University of New York. The event will be comprised of a panel discussion combined with readings. With us today is Amiel Alcalé, Amber Tamblin, Anna Bozisevic. Our event will be moderated by Sarah Larson. To open the afternoon, I would like to welcome now Shepard Powell, Diane's life partner, to say a few words. I first encountered Spring and Autumn Annals when Diane and I were kind of unconsciously courting. And she lent me the manuscript and I lay down and read it in, you know, 24 hours. I'm, I'm dyslexic, so I'm a little slow. Uh, and I had never read anything like it. At one point, Diane and her friend Brett Romer were working on a version filled with photographs. There were over 200. No one would publish it in that form. And 
Diane kept wanting it to be perfect. So it took 40 years or more from when she showed it to me for it to come out and what um, almost 50 years from the time of writing. I'm just gonna read one short paragraph. It's about her printing press. I spend long hours on theater mailing lists, which you, Freddie, warned me against in our last dream together. I gather up my poems to you. I pray. The press is in the shop. The shop is yellow. Tomorrow, I learn to run it. After that, book after book to change the face of time. Peter. Thank you, Shep. That means a lot. A few words now about our participants. Emil Alkalay is an award-winning poet, scholar, critic, translator, and prose stylist. He's the author of numerous books. City Lights has published several of his works. He has also been published by Post Apollo Press, Ugly Duckling Press, Beyond Baroque, and many others. He is the initiator and general editor of Lost and Found, the CUNY Poetics Document Initiative. His writing has appeared in the New York Times Book Review, The New Yorker, The New Republic, and many other outlets. Also with us is Amber Tamblin. Amber is an actor, writer, and director. She has appeared extensively in both film and television, but what many do not know about her is that she's also a very gifted poet, having produced several chapbooks and three collections of poetry that include the collection Dark Sparkler, published by HarperCollins. She has co-founded the Right Now Poetry Society, dedicated to creating unique and quality programming in poetry. She is also an outspoken feminist and one of the founders of the nonprofit organization Times Up. Also joining us tonight is Anna Bozicevic. She is a Lambda Literary Award-winning poet and translator. She is the author of three acclaimed books of poetry, which include Stars of the Night Commute, Rise in the Fall, and Joy of Missing Out. She received a 40 Under 40, the Future of Feminism Award from the Feminist Press, and has worked for the Penn American Center, the Center for Humanities of the Graduate Center at CUNY, and Bruce High Quality Foundation. And last but not least, our moderator for the uh, afternoon is Sarah Larson. Sarah Larson is a poet and writer. Her newest book is The Riot Girl Thing. Her previous books include Mary Hell, and also All Revolutions Will Be Fabulous. She is the author of several chapbooks. She was the co-editor of the seminal literary publication, Tri Magazine from 2008 to 2011. All of our participants tonight, today have a very special connection to Diane and her work, which makes this really an especially auspicious occasion. So join us now in giving them a warm welcome. I will turn it over to Sarah Larson to get the program started. All right, thank you, Peter, for that wonderful introduction um, to everybody. And thank you to everybody who's joining us today to City Lights Books for hosting us on the platform um, to celebrate the release of this monumental book, Spring and Autumn Annals. Um, so, thrilled that this is in the world and that now all of you have a chance to read it and be with it. I want to introduce, to begin, Amber Tamblin. Amber. Hi, everybody. Hi. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Shep. It's always so wonderful to see your face um, and to see all of you and uh, to be here with you virtually, even though I wish we were all um, 
sitting up cuddled inside city lights, passing around a flask for those that partake. It's an honor for me to, to be here to celebrate Diane and this tremendous book. As always, I want to say, I want to read a piece from this that I really love, but uh, make sure that you order this book. Remember to support independent bookstores and specifically support City Lights. It is the heartbeat, the literary heartbeat of the country, if you ask me, and it's important that we support it in every way, shape, and form. So buy this book there, buy any books you are wanting to read, make sure you do it. Um, I wanted to show you, I'm sitting in my great, great grandmother's chair. And on the wall here, I've got some art pieces. One of them is by George Herms over here in the corner, who is an old friend of um, uh, Diane's. But this piece right here is actually one of many things Diane used to send me. We had a lot of correspondence over the years. And this is one piece that she sent me that I had framed. She would, she would send you things called feathers, which were... Um, uh, just pieces of writing or things she had written on and she would send you little mini baby sweet poems. This is more of an actual piece. Uh, so I'm just going to read it to you because it's on my wall and it sits here behind me where I uh, read all of my books and do a lot of my writing. And it's called All Chemical Signals. Some of you might know this poem. For instance, the Aurora Borealis, lightning, a beached whale, the dream you didn't have or a slip of the tongue. These are signs. Everyone else is telling stories. Signs can't be told, though you can learn to read them. If you're lucky enough to catch one going by, keep it to yourself. I love that. I don't know about all of you, but I've had a really hard couple of months. Uh, I've had a really hard couple of years. Losing Diane and losing Michael McClure and losing recently my writing mentor, Jack Hirschman, uh, has left me a little bit of a shell of myself. But I think one of the things I love so much about Diane's work and her writing is that she was never afraid to go there and to live and thrive and create in the grief and to find real beauty in death. And so I'm going, with that in mind, I'm going to read from a chapter of this book, a little piece on winter because I feel like that's very much a part of um, the ending of things and where we are right now psychically uh, in this country and in this world. It is hands we are discussing now, the long hands of junkies, incredible, the fingers, incredible gestures, the energy shooting out through the restless fingertips, fantastic, the movement so elegant, so vulgar, Kirby Doyle's hands, Judy Garland's hands, and the bells are ringing. Your hands, Freddie. John Wiener's hands, which were always a little dirty. He haunts this night. Tonight, one after solstice, winter moon still large, not full anymore. Three days after Freddie's bardo. No night without dreams anymore. No sleep tonight. Heater rattles a little overhead, making music. Bed has one sheet, cat cause, boot marks on it. I wait for sleep. It's touch, your touch. Two nights ago, dreamed of a man, a mandala on fire, made of our bodies. Our heads were toward the center, bodies, legs, raiding out like a sun wheel. Allen Ginsberg hair was already catching fire. He was smiling, putifically. We were all clustered there somehow. Ocean, like congregation. Okay. This is winter. 
This rain, this moon, the sounds in the house. Alex banging his head against the top of his crib, sounding like somebody pounding on the door. You are still the fact I live with. This is winter. We tried to make another solstice feast, but could not say the rituals. Burned a birch log to the sun, which came reluctantly back. There are earthquakes everywhere, and winds, and storms, disaster areas. I think of Frank, thinking of whoever he thinks of, leaning, perhaps, against a window frame, thinking. I envy him, the clarity, the, the apparent directness. This is winter. There is snow on the ground, not much, and dirty. I have bought the children new boots with fur inside. I see them, and me, sleeping on subway ramps, shivering a little. Another winter. I fear it. It comes. I called them my brown mouse and my gray mouse and put them to bed. My girls with big eyes like war movie waifs. And winter for me is walking on subway grates. So the warm air comes through and into the shoes. Winter for me is standing in front of heaters, in front of ovens, stoves, fireplaces, knowing you should be doing something else, but standing there instead, simply standing there, keeping warm, as if that was all of life, the end of my existence. To me, warm and a little drowsy. My heater rattles. It takes care of me. Alan is typing on the other side of the wall. He raises funds for his theater. I have my press. A man is coming toward to look at our house, perhaps to buy it out from under us. It is cold outside. I think of packing my books. Debbie Lee fell in this first snow and tore her leg muscle. Minnie says, Freddie jumped out of a window and Debbie fell down, making some link. You are the blank wall I come to every turn, wherever I start thinking. But I shall tell of the winters, the thousands of winters. There have been more winters than springs or summers or falls, no matter where I start. But tell you first of the falls I didn't mention. The fall I moved to the McClure's pad in 61, a house on 4th Street filled with their New York spirits, reluctant, slow spirits living darkness a lot. I turned on all the lights. I moved into the center room and I sat there sat reading on the bed with my knees drawn up, waiting to somehow fill the rest of the space, listening all night to the voices outside. This was first floor front. To the sounds of the neighborhood, frightened as a cat, ready to jump any time in any direction. That year you came and got for me for Thanksgiving. You and Alan, who was still your roommate, came moving dishes and pots back to the Houston Houston Street where I cooked a magic meal for incredible people. The first, the A-heads and, and uh, Alan's lovers reluctantly cooked that dinner, had planned on a restaurant, but you and Alan came with a shopping cart, came swearing that that had, uh, home was the only kind of Thanksgiving. And so I cooked. Ann Holt made me a huge salad, cutting the lettuce into symmetrical shapes. You all rehearsed Faust Fautou in the midst of the party, crept home to sit in the winter out on 4th Street, getting all the time bigger with Minnie, belly growing. We had a Christmas there, a Christmas tree. A lot of people drunk, Gregory Corso obnoxious, Cordulov on something, waking Roy on the bed, asking him why he was drunk, most petulantly. Fell asleep that New Year's Eve at 10 p.m., which, pray God, 
I can still do. It makes my head spin to think of sleeping that much or dreaming or not. Thank you all so much. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. Wow. Thank you so much, Amber. That was really a wonderful passage to hear. And also just to hear how you spoke of how Diane was never afraid to go there with grief really touched me. And I think about how she really did do this sort of transformation in her work. Um, there really was a, an alchemical process to it. And even, yeah, referring back to the poem, Alchemical Signals, it all kind of just ties in. It's, it's wonderful to hear. Thank you. Now we're going to move on and hear from Amiel Akle. Amiel. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks everybody for being here. I'll just uh, give the long arc for a second. I wrote to Diane when I was a teenager, 1971, through having received a pile of floating bears from Vincent Farini, a poet in Gloucester, who was my poetry person at the time. I began showing him my po poems. And Vincent was the person to whom Charles Olson's Maximus poems were first addressed. And when I read, looked at these floating bears, I said, how can I get more of these? And Vincent said, well, write to Diane. So I wrote to her and she proceeded to send me back like an eight or nine page letter describing you know, all the books that she'd published with Poets Press, that uh, things were a little bit hectic at the moment because she was moving, et cetera, et cetera. It took me about 30 years uh, to figure out you know, how hectic that was and how incredible it was that she wrote at the time. It took us a long time to reconnect, to put it mildly, even though at some point in the mid seventies, I was living in San Francisco for a while, but I wasn't like officially a writer. I was working at a place called Jacques Auto Body. And um, even though I was writing, but I, it didn't dawn on me that I could actually maybe find some of these people, even though I, I you know, frequented the haunts of North Beach and the bookstores and so forth. In any case, sometime around 2014, Diane gave me the manuscript of Spring and Autumn Annals, and I read it immediately. I mean, in a matter of hours, and I was completely flabbergasted with the book and proceeded to make a concerted effort to figure out how we could publish it. And at the time we had been publishing with Lost and Found, um, primarily Diane's poetics, her lectures, because I felt that those were kind of like, uh, you know, kind of like a Dead Sea Scrolls of American poetics, because people who hadn't studied with her or hadn't encountered one of those pieces just didn't know about them. And they were antithetical to everything that was going on in so many ways. Her insistence on plain language, her insistence on, on staying, as she said, staying with the feeling and staying with the text and, and extracting from it her own set of terms and her own parameters uh, without ever subjugating what she was looking at. And in, in spending a lot of time with those, I realized that Diane was a great prose writer. Uh, truly a great prose writer. And uh, it's something that has not really been talked about or recognized at all. And, you know, for people who are familiar with the New American poetry, they're not really familiar with, you know, the New American story. 
and some of the writers that were in here, but many who were not, you know, and people don't read the prose of Robert Creeley or Mike Rumaker or Hubert Selby or, you know, even Amiri's early prose or Doug Wolf or any number of other people that were Diane's contemporaries and whom she was reading and thinking with and thinking about. And it can even, you can even see it in Dinners and Nightmares. It's, it's, it's absolutely brilliant, um, you know, brilliant prose. So when I, when I saw Spring and Autumn Annals, I, you know, I, I recognized this as a masterpiece, you know, not just of the time, but of any time. And, and um, you know, proceeded really, as people know, I'm a little bit persistent. And uh, <laughs> I, uh, you know, we, we, we worked at it and we worked at it and we worked at it. And uh, I knew also, uh, you know, I, I write this in my intro. I know it was a little bit hard for Diane to let go of this book. And I think at a certain point, Shepard and I cracked, or Shepard really cracked that, you know, and, and it had to do with her indebtedness to the world that she was trying to transmit to people and her desire to transmit as much of it as possible. And, you know, so I think she always felt that however it came out, it, it, it wouldn't fully be able to transmit everything that she hoped it could. But I would like to say that I think she's wrong um, because uh, as Sarah and Shepard and I know, uh, you know, as the executors, there's a lot of things we're doing that Diane would not be happy with, but uh, we know that they're right. and and uh and we're right too so uh this is certainly one of them and it's just an extraordinary thing so i want to just read a couple of passages one i skip a little bit but you'll get the idea uh this is this is from us from spring the springs before that wandering the village the sleeping in washington square and getting up to virgil to the writing those notebooks not so interesting now looking back the day that bum bought me a bowl of soup. Brown eyes, you look like you need something to eat. Propelling me into a greasy spoon on Third Avenue. Pea soup, 15 cents. We both sat down to a bowl. Brown eyes, you know I was born outside of time? Lord Byron was a son of a bitch. Was he not, brown eyes? If I tell you something, I can never get it back. Do you know anything about time and space? Echoing last spring, the bum of Third Avenue in front of Cooper Square as I left the house, he came to me and earnestly grasped my hand. Believe the news they never teach you. Believe the news they never teach you. I said, okay. And he said, and take care of your sister. The light has changed, is softer. Soon there will be the smell of vegetation. The grocer on Sixth Street looks sadly at the pavement and tells me it's the time now to plant vegetables. 40 years in the city. He still thinks of the softening earth. And one other passage I want to read, which is from Fall. Last year, three days before your death, did you, under constraint and complaining the while, help me to carry firewood home to the house? That which was for us epitome of house, while I explained to you how important the fire was and urged you on, bitching, did you then desire to whisk Jeannie from her duties into a day of play? You both together instead took dance class. I insisting it was important that Jeannie take dance class. Now on the radio is La Boheme, belonging to an unspeakably ancient layer of myself, 
And I wonder a lot about the lost cities of Africa, how the mother fashioned them and if they pleased her. I'm sure that Manahata pleased her a while. It was so willing to play to sport in the incandescent glow of Maya. And then drooping like John Cage in the 60s, like an old fire just before dawn, like pumpkins caught in a frost. It lies now gray. The towers are melting. They're flattening out. They're almost not there at all. Where there were towers are now flat office buildings, melting like wax, the spires of Manhattan in the heat of approaching events. The river turns black. It turns back on itself. It fills with salt. There is a fire waiting under the earth, under the earth's skin, so that we dance more lightly, leaping into the air. Harvey Brown in Buffalo makes books. I make books. John Wieners. Olson hiding in Gloucester reads maybe the hymns to Kali John got from me. 11 million Turks are voting today. The man on the radio just said to me, truly wonderful is the sport of Brahma. Thanks. Wonderful. Thank you, Amiel. Great to hear from Spring and to hear about Diane as a great prose writer. I couldn't agree more. And I think that as people read her prose work more and more, I think that will become more well-known about her. I hope so. I think so. Now let's move to our next panelist, Anna Basasevic. Hi, Anna. thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Um, thank you so much, uh, City Lights and Amiel and Chep and uh, Amber. It's amazing <laughs> to be here. It's um, a year and a few days since uh, Diane went, and uh, I've been sitting here all day with uh, all the all the books and um, just sort of making connections. I, I love the passage that Amber read about uh, the dream mandala and uh, Ellen's hair on fire. And I was thinking about um, like the things that are so extraordinary about Diane's prose, you know, getting getting through grief through uh, a sort following a sort of sacred geometry. Um, she writes a lot about concentric circles. I thought of uh, the circles on the cover of the calculus of variation and uh, just the rigor of writing along to a burning stick of incense, counting the time, counting days, um, writing until the fire burns out and how much uh, documentarian practice and ritual and, and uh, the, the need to see clearly and to take down what you saw, the photograph, the phonograph, uh, all meet um, and uh, the way that her engagement with movement through performance, through uh, writing for dancers, through sort of living with and through Freddie, also reflects in the way that this prose moves, where the movement of seasons and uh, the movements of the words and recollections and this sort of like oniric flow uh, makes me think of Pasolini are sort of one and the same uh, repetition chant. And uh, I don't know, I'll read a little bit about that movement uh, and her relationship with light. And that's another thing, you know, the way she's, the way she's recording um, New York. I'm in New York now in the fall and I'm hearing and seeing all these things and the colors that she mentions. The light uptown and down are not alike. 
fall air up there always seemed to be a twilight, always red, red and distant, as it had been my childhood behind the steeple of St. Stephen's Church in Brooklyn. There in Brooklyn, the sense of the water nearby. Perhaps it was the water made that air. Dull red sunsets like they used to be so fond of on Christmas cards. The kind of card my father sent all his clients. 500 cards went out engraved with our names. Never written word on any of them. Downtown Fall Air is high, it rings of crystal. The Chrysler building stands up in it, there are towers. It is, as Alan says, city of the sun, not so uptown. Up there to the wind got too cold, they fished in the river, caught eels and they ate pigeons, I'm sure of it. Would often see a man walk home, one pigeon held careful in his hand, a surreptitious swing to his cracking boots. Nevertheless, it was hard to come down again. And just the page before, she again, she, she's writing, just the way she writes about color, I had a block of old white plaster of Paris, long, wet and dried and hard, and I was carving it with a screwdriver and a hammer was carving it. White dust in the air, white light, clean coldness and fire. You told me often of the light of that moment. You swung your key around, you walked in, there was music. And then, you know, I turned to something like uh, Talking Poetics from Naropa. I think, Amil, this is your book. So <laughs> when you come back, <laughs> ask me for it. But you know, uh, she talking about Diane's prose, like there's an amazing essay here called Light and Keats. And I'll, I want to read the beginning of that. It seems to me more and more as I get more and more deeply into poetry that the actual sub poetry is made out of is light. There are poems where the light actually comes through the page the same way that it comes through the canvas in certain Flemish paintings, so that you're not seeing light reflected off the painting, but light that comes through. And I don't know the tricks that make this happen, but I know they're there and you can really tell when it's happening and when it's not. So I've been trying to figure out what makes it happen. And I think it's not very different from the light of meditation. So that I'm beginning to suspect that what makes it happen is the way sound moves in you, moving your spirit in a certain way to produce a certain effect, which is like an effect of light. So I think I'll end there in the light. Thank you, Anna. What a way to end. I'm like sitting here writing in my notebook about um, uh, you quoting Diane about talking about how the light comes through the page and poetry and um, how it's similar to light and meditation and just thinking like, oh, I need to remember that and writing it down. It's so necessary. And then um, relationship to sound and song. I'm also looking at these pieces of song. I'm, I'm also pretty sure this is not my book. So whoever's book it is, <laughs> come claim it. Awesome. Well, thank you for bringing that in um, and for speaking. So we have some time and I believe that Amber had to go, but it was great to have her here. I want to open up a conversation with Ami Allen with Anna and talk a little bit more about Diane's work and Diane's writing very specifically. So um, Anna and Amiel, I'll just ask you to say it, whatever it is that you're like, feeling at the moment um, and that you wanna say about what Diane's writing means to you, what her influence is. I'm thinking for myself about all of the different elements that Diane is able to bring into her work that I, I just find stunning and influential, her erudition, her humor, which is great, um, her devotion to poetry and to the word, the visceral feeling of being in the physical world that she is incredibly able to evoke and the spiritual wisdom that she's able to bring into her work. So 
um, with those things just kind of flying out there, I'm curious what both of you think and what are you feeling about Diane's poetry, her prose, her work? I, mean, I know you want to. <laughs> Where do we start? <laughs> if you want, I can start. I, I would just say, um, well, a couple of things. The, the This prose in particular is very close to me. For, for whatever reason, this is a, a you know, the, there's so many different elements in there that are familiar to me in terms of its syntax, its rhythm, its clarity, its impressionism, its modalities, its movements, its um, absolute concreteness, but incredibly ethereal qualities as well that are very close to my own thinking about prose. So when I first read it, I, I was just, I was, it's a book I, I wanted, I wanted somebody to have written and there it was. And it, in many senses, it carried with it a lot of the qualities of the prose that I'm closest to. Again, many of the people that I mentioned, you know, that may or may not seem apparently allied in any way, but I know that's what she was reading. I know that's what was circulating. And I know that is what those, those are the um, parameters that got into her, her uh, sensibility as a prose writer, besides many other things. And I guess what, what strikes me also, and, you know, Anna and I, we, you know, we were working Lost and Found together at the beginning, and we did a number of Diane's poetics works. And then not that long after you also were the you were the first you know the manuscript of spring and autumn was handed over to you to check it against several other manuscripts you know so you had a very deep dive into that as well um but i guess i would just say with the poetics too the the um i i find it continually resonant in its in its uh it, most particularly in its ability to let plain language resonate fully and to trust it because it has depths that are almost bottomless. You know, if there are layers and layers and layers and it's a very tricky thing and it takes a certain, it's a weird kind of, you know, and everybody who knows Diane, well, it's a weird kind of combination of absolute humility and total bravado at the same time. You know, it's just, it's just, um, you know, uh, here's what I'm going to give you and trust that it has been thought through for a very long time. You know, it's not off the cuff and uh, see what you can do with it. And, and that quality really keeps coming back to me. Um, yeah, I was looking at that first correspondence, Samuel, when we were starting to look at the, the book, and uh, it's pretty much like verbatim the way the book is introduced on the cover, and of course, everyone should get the book, um, but the description of, you know, her writing for 40 minutes uh, with the incense uh, as a way to hold still for a certain amount of time and write, and she wrote, I type as fast as I can without cleaning up mistakes or spelling, I thought of it as a letter to Freddie, and then later, uh, you know, cleans up the. She said she cleaned up the stream of consciousness manuscript and made something people could read. 
Um, so uh, that like uh, urgency of taking it down. I remember she said something similar about writing the calculus of variations, which I uh, brought up, which was um, that she tried to uh, sand away uh, the sort of rough edges and, and make it more like a, a beautiful, like uh, whatever, wild postmodern prose. Uh, but uh, it, it it just wasn't it wasn't the right way. Like the the, the smoothing out the material was not the point. The roughness of the walls, you know, of, of the room she's describing should somehow be felt in the syntax of the sentences and to make it perfect was beside the point. But then what's of course like so artful and amazing about it is that it is that it is perfect. You know, she leaves just the right <laughs> imperfections in as well. So yeah, it's um, it, it's it's amazing to think of her as uh, as a documentarian. And you know the, the thing that uh, in how I entered into work, working with Diane is, as you know, we were working on her lecture, um, uh, Mysteries of Vision, some notes on HD. And this was now, I feel like it's been more than, uh, I have a note from Diane of 2010 when she was here. And uh, just this idea that engaging with the lives of your peers was equal, the same as engaging with the, you know, the influences or the poets that inspire you, uh, just, uh, holding forth this uh, conversation that was outside of linear time where everything was important and uh, off-cuff remarks you know became mantras uh, to repeat and remember later on and, and load stars to go by and that everything uh, taking it all down was necessary and uh, was what was keeping everyone warm and keeping everyone alive and keeping things moving so and then I think that's something that like I try to learn from her and she kind of pushed me out of like out into the world to associate with the painters and musicians and uh, architects and and sort of think think about all kinds of terminologies and and ways to practice uh, that that you know can just kind of be synthesized back into this synesthetic vision that she just you know so easily it seems uh, manifests like in this prose so yeah. Uh, I'm remembering that fall when yeah. she was here, also Amiel, and um, her staying atop of the Living Theater in Janina's apartment, and um, some some ma some mannequins on the terrace, and it just seems <laughs> unreal that that actually happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that was that was really beautiful to hear, and just to think of Diane amongst the mannequins is is really great. Going off of something that you just said, Anna, I'm curious, Amiel and Anna, how Diane's work and which specific works, um, this book and others included, in what way they have influenced you as writers, in what way they acted as jumping off points and how you see them in terms of like, being literature that sort of propels more writing to be done by other other writers, yourself and others. Well, I don't know. I'm not sure if I would really think of it that way. I mean, I, I tend to think of um, I tend to think of things more in terms of permission, you know, in the in the Robert Duncan sense, you know often I'm permitted to return to a meadow as if it were a field made up by the mind that is a place of first permission. And to get, you know, a person who has been very important for me in that, and, and Diane has been in a, in a different way, but a person who has been very important for me in that way is Atel Adnan, 
And it particularly has to do with the fact that she's Lebanese, but had been very involved, has been very involved in American writing. And in Diane's case, it's like, you know, it, it's just, it's uncanny, you know, I mean, it's uncanny. I mean, she inhabited a world that is completely intimate to me, you know, I mean, I remember, you know, I remember looking at her, some of her diaries, uh, big, 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 you know, sketchbooks and, and diaries that are at Chapel Hill. And a lot of that time she was, uh, some of that time she was traveling around, she was in Gloucester, she was in Cambridge, she was staying with Garrett Lansing, she was hanging out with this guy, um, Mark Nunley, whom I knew, who had a little press called Rest Out Press. And I'm reading this stuff and I'm going like, you know, it, it's just this, this um, it's kind of being able to see magnified and amplified things that are completely native to me through other eyes and, and to find that I'm also an inhabitant of that world. I mean, that to me is the key for Diane. She treated writing as a place and she was a native to that place. Okay, and she made that possible for, 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 for other people to think that way. You know, that was her place and, and she, she was a native to that place and she allowed you to, to think that way which is an enormous, uh, and, and you know, it also has to do with her particular knowledge, you know, her knowledge of printing, her knowledge of, you know, just all the professional things that she knew like the back of her hand. I mean, she knew those things very well and they were part of her apparatus, part of the way she thought about that. And I love that, I'm a do-it-yourselfer, you know, I do things, I make things, I fix things. And that's how I also feel about her writing. You know, it's it's self-contained. It's a kit. You can you know you can fix the world with it. You know, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, some of them. In which which, uh, which board which of her poems are sort of very outwardly permission-giving? Of course, is like the revolutionary letters, and um, the one I, I was just looking at now is forty-six. And as you learn the magic, learn to believe it. Don't be surprised when it works, you undercut your power. So just that, yeah, just that sort of absolute confidence. Um, and then Shep was reading earlier about her press. And I, I also had this paragraph that I was looking at. It's like, I've set out, I shall buy my press. It shall be here before the winter solstice. This is the store Alan found to put it in. A little cold and white, a bit like Alan, but there is joy in that. The theater, I think sometimes is a bit like me with its red satin curtains, warm stove and glass. They're both on East 4th Street across from each other. I shall play Susan McSween and play the feast. I shall be at the theater every day and at the press and in my study here, I have set out beyond the circle you've closed. The store for the press is downstairs, half a flight and back up the street, back exit. I shall put in a desk and sit at it, run the machine, build shelves, the glory of God and the joy of all, all sentient beings. Uh, so the, this sort of uh, just uh, simple, uh, uh, I don't know, I'm, it's, I, I, wouldn't, I don't think it, the word sacred is necessarily the right word, but maybe it is the right word. The simple embrace of this uh, straightforward mission that consists of, uh, you know, obtaining a machine and finding a, a room for it and using it for the reproduction of your friend's work that you think everyone in the United States should be able to read uh, and not depend on, you know, tortoise slow uh, distribution through official channels. 
uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's something that leaves you with no choice but to say, yes, I can do the same. And why am I not doing the same? And when am I going to do the same? And with whom? And uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a go. It's like a kind of like a go light in that way. And it's funny to contemplate it also in like the, our context now and how we do it now and what's possible. And um. Yeah, Diane definitely always made me think about um, possibility and just hearing like Amiel, you talk about the permission and um, Anna, you just talking about like the magic and the, the will to have these projects and these things like having the press or having the theater and like engaging in a community of writers and also like broadening out from that community as well is really powerful and something that, you know, Diane engaged in a lot. Um, and the thing about the magic, you know, um, don't undercut your own magic to me speaks of directed will. And I see so much of her work as this act of engaging with um, something sacred, which is poetry, but also directing will around like being able to have a container for it and let it live its life in the world. I, yeah, so I, I don't, really, I'm yeah. Yeah, I, I'd also emphasize, you know, that something that comes out in some of the things we published in the in the in lost and found but it's still not completely you know there still needs to be a lot more uh uh said about it you know diane's erudition was staggering you know and it was um it was in areas that are not that easy to grasp you know symbolic languages the way that she was able to you know look at a at a landscape or, or use a quote unquote image, but that thing had resonance across time, cultures, mythologies, um, you know, different forms of being, uh, all of those things. And those were very transparent to her, but you know, that didn't just happen. I mean, she learned about all of that stuff and studied it and thought through it and played around with it. So in that sense, you know, in, in many ways, she's, she's also a very classical writer, you know, she's a very classical writer. I mean, her plain language is, is, is incredibly dense, you know, it's incredibly dense and the complexity comes in the, in the larger blocks of rhythm and of, and of syntactical, um, you know, where does the emotion come in those passages? You know, it comes at a certain point because that's how the rhythm is created to get you there, you know, and that's great prose writing gets you to a place where an emotion is released or, you know, an emotion becomes possible. And, you know, I find it pretty, you know, I'll just say, you know, a lot of prose I look at, <laughs> written in the last 20 or 25 years, it's just, it's very thin. A lot of it is very thin. You know, I mean, I know it's a grand generalization, but it doesn't, it doesn't hark back to, even if it's not visible exactly, you know that Diane has read all the things that one needs to have read in order for her prose style to be that resonant. It's as simple as that. 
It's as simple as that. Because even using, even, even the same, even almost the same sentence by two different writers will sound differently depending on where it is, you know, where it is. And her, her, her pacing ability in, in spring and autumn is beyond belief, you know. It's just uh, the, the sense of pacing and of, you know, the small blocks versus the longer blocks, the, the, the things where, you know, Freddie comes more presently, uh, the different memories, the different conflicts, the, the earlier memories, you know, it's all juxtaposed in ways that make it incredibly effective and, and emotional. And that's not easy to do. Yeah, and I keep thinking about uh, the photographs. Um, there are some in this book, but uh, as Shep mentioned, there is a whole like world of images that uh, is unseen here. And uh, what's amazing about the prose is that I feel like the prose pictures them so effectively, even without seeing the photos. Although, of course, I want I do want to see the photos. But I'm, I'm thinking of it as some kind of like set of soul captions as well. And uh, I, I, I wish I could see more <laughs> of this world uh, in, some, in some way. Uh, I mean, the, I guess the experience of looking at these photos and, and reading this is, is a little bit like uh, watching like a silent film or a, like seeing titles and then seeing the images. Yeah. yeah. But you're absolutely right. I mean, that was one of the things we talked about when, when we were in publication, you know, was that I was trying to also convince Diana of to say, well, look, you know, yeah, there are all these photographs, but it's in the prose. It's already in the prose, you know, mm -hmm. people, people can't, that's exactly what you said. You know, you can see it. Cop, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, agreed. Okay, well, um, we're getting to the top of the hour. Amiel and Anna, are there any last thoughts that you have, anything burning that you wanted to say that you haven't had a chance yet? Just really happy that this is in the world, finally, you know, yeah. yeah. Read it, see for yourself, see for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. We are just film critics here. fans, <laughs> um, but you gotta see to believe it, so. Yeah, awesome. and thanks to thanks to everybody at City Lights for getting us through this. It was, uh, as uh, Shep knows, you know, there was a Sicilian moment in all of this as well. <laughs> well. Absolutely, yeah. Thank you to City Lights for remaining a heroic bookstore and publisher, and um, may it continue, as Diane says. And Peter, thank you for having this space for us and I'll turn it back over to you now. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, and thank you, everyone. I mean, this has been a really moving, a stimulating, a really beautiful afternoon. I, I, we feel so fortunate to have this amazing group of speakers with us today. And Sarah, thanks for guiding the afternoon along so smoothly. Amiel, Anna, Amber, who's now gone, um, an honor to have you all with us. And gratitude to Shepard for creating a kind of a positive undertone to get the afternoon started. I mean, this does wrap up our celebration in honor of Diane. But before we sign off, I would like to remind you, we have posted links with which you may purchase Diane's books. 
Also, please check out the City Lights website for more events coming up on our calendar. Uh, there's a lot more in the making. Uh, also, special thanks to Chris Carosi of City Lights for all of his efforts in uh, making today a reality and, of course, Wednesday. Uh, this event was brought to you by the City Lights Foundation, working in conjunction with Lost and Found, the CUNY Poetics Document Initiative at the City of University of New York. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Please be safe, be well. We hope to see you again soon. Thanks, Peter. See you. Peace. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.